0: it worked. I was able to get control over it. So if the slide stops working, it's my fault, not their fault back there. Um, well, good afternoon. Um, the, uh, passage today is we're back in Habakkuk. I know that's a, not an easy book to find if you're not used to, to searching for it there. Uh, but this is the, the fourth message that we have heard from Habakkuk, and uh, I'm excited to get back into it today. The uh, reading through it and studying through it has been an interesting journey for me. i would not, not studied it quite like I have uh, to preach it, and Habakkuk is a book that is filled with a lot of uh, modern-day applications for our life, and that just proves to me that the Word of God is living and active. And it is able to to uh, be applied to our lives here and now. And just in in a terms of uh, recap and to review, if if you it's been a while since we started this book. And in, in the very first book, we kind of set it up for uh, how we came into this story and and came into uh, Habakkuk hearing or lamenting to the Lord and uh, seeing that the Lord had placed judgment on, on the people of Israel way back in the Old Testament before this time came about because they had turned to pagan idolatry. And so the news that, that arises in Habakkuk seems really bad, but God had already told them that this would come if they did not keep his word and they did not trust in him for the sins of Manasseh and, and some of the other kings. And their uh, journey into pagan idolatry, this is the judgment that is coming. And then when we started in Habakkuk, we heard Habakkuk's original complaint. He was actually complaining about the people of Israel, stating that they were wicked and they, they had turned from the Lord and he was crying out to the Lord to say, how long will it take before you judge this and you set this right? And then the Lord gives an answer that uh, makes things worse tells them that a ruthless and brutal, idolatrous nation is coming and is going to conquer them. And then we we journeyed into uh, the second half of chapter 1, where Habakkuk responds remembering the character of God, and he's wrestling with this news that this pagan nation's coming, and he's like, but God, if you are uh, this God who is all of these awesome things, then how can you let this happen? And we we heard last time that the Lord is our hope for anxious hearts because He is the everlasting one. He is the Almighty One. He is the Holy One. He is the faithful one, and He is the Sovereign One. And that was that took us up through Habakkuk 113. And the question is for us today as we start have you ever prayed to God for him to act and work in a difficult situation only to find out that the situation is going to get worse, that it's going to get darker before it gets lighter. If you have seen that or experienced that, then you know on some level what Habakkuk is experiencing, crying out for God to act and to fix a situation. And God says, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And you see him wrestling with this fact of, but this isn't who it seems to be that God is. So how can this happen? And I hope that it reminds you of the passage that uh, Pastor Nathan preached on First Corinthians ten thirteen. That you are not the only one to deal with a situation like this. That that situation that you may be experiencing is not uncommon. Demand for here in this um, Old Testament book, Habakkuk is experiencing the same thing. And so today, we, we may be in a similar situation, lamenting over a difficult situation, only to see that it's getting worse. And we ask, will this continue forever? And how long, O oh Lord? Will, will God allow this darkness to reign while the light seems to be fleeting? Or while the light feels even non-existent? Habakkuk, in this, in this beginning uh, chapter... As we are concluding it, he is wrestling and he he is faced with a choice. He can allow his doubts to rule him and either be destructive or they can be creative. He can use his doubts and struggles and agonizing questions to turn from God and to renounce his faith. Or he can keep his hold on God and trust him for an answer. And we may hang in the same balance yet today. I know I have experienced uh, situations uh, in my life where you cry out for God to act and it's, it's a while before you feel like He does. But the question is, will we use our doubts and our struggles to turn from God or will we keep hold of Him, trusting in Him for the answer? And today we, we journey into point number two that we began last time. The reason that we need hope Is the enemy suppresses the truth. And that you might hear that and think that sounds a little bit like another uh, passage of scripture from Romans 1, where God is actually telling us that in our sin and wickedness, we suppress the truth. And that is true here as well, that in the Chaldeans' wickedness and sinfulness, they suppress the truth. And Habakkuk is crying out. He knows a lot about them. They are what would be known as the, the wicked nation on earth at that time, the nation to be feared. It would be like we went back into World War II time and thought about the Nazis or thinking about other uh, totalitarian or, or uh, uh, powerful regimes that, that ruled wickedly on the nation or on the earth, conquering nations and taking over peoples without respect to life or anything else. Just they wanted power. And the Chaldeans, that was the enemy at that time. And they suppressed the truth. Let us look at verses 14 through 17. He says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook and he drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he makes sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? And you see in verse 14, this is like the, the uh, bridge between the, what, we, what Habakkuk knew to be true about God in verses 12 and 13, and then what he knew to be true about the, the Chaldeans. And he's like asking God, like, you're going to make us like the fish of the sea. That's how they treat people. And he says, "Are you going to be okay with that?" He doesn't understand how this can can work out. And he, uh, we see from verses fifteen and seventeen, that the enemy suppresses the truth about man. Only God has the right to determine the purpose of life for man. But this enemy thinks that he has uh, the one, or he is the one that's able to determine life. He has no regard for it. They would literally capture their victims and lead them away with fish hooks and with nets and dragnets. A man that is an Old Testament uh, scholar and kind of historian says that there were monuments from Mesopotamia uh, that document the custom of literally driving a hook through the lower lip of their captives. And long lines of captives with this hook through their lips are, are being depicted as being hauled off to Babylon. Like literally, like it, it wasn't just a, a metaphor. Like they would literally drive a hook through their lip and carry them away. And so he's, he's saying, you know, God, this is the people that you're bringing against us. They did not value life. But they only valued those people that stood in their way as a way, a way to gain more power, more wealth, more prestige. We see in um, verse 15, it says, For... I think it's 15 verse 16. It says, for by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich for by them, the, the people that he conquers. And it says, because of them, he rejoices and is glad. The enemy Habakkuk faced cared nothing about life. Habakkuk lamented to the Lord about how could this be that God would allow a depraved nation to come and overthrow them when they contradicted the truth about which God had given, about life being in the image of God, being precious and being ordered by God. The Chaldean error suppressed the truth about man, that they, they devalued life They, uh, in the way that they gained wealth, thinking that they did it themselves. And they rejoiced in the fleeting riches and power. And ultimately, they suppressed truth about God in idolatry. The enemy suppresses the truth about God that only God is to be worshipped, but that's not how they viewed it. We saw that even God spoke about them in, in Habakkuk one eleven. They said that they were guilty men, whose own might is their God. And then in verse uh, sixteen it says, Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. He is he is bowing down at the idol of power, at the idol of of victory at the idol of of um, supreme ruler over the earth it 's not to say that they actually thought their nets were gods, but they do not see a need outside of themselves for anything. They are ungrateful they do not acknowledge that everything they have has been given or allowanced to them by God, and that is a word I looked it up allowanced that seems kind of weird, but it was like. God was giving them this power and they did not see it. They saw that they were gaining it. They were the ones that were in charge of it. They believed they had done it themselves and all they needed was themselves. This is how they, they suppressed the truth. They set themselves up as God. They have made idols of themselves and their own ability. Martin Luther said, He who boasts of a thing and is glad and joyous on account of it, But does not thank the true God, makes himself into an idol, and gives himself the glory, and does not rejoice in God, but in his own strength. As we will see that in this passage, this is all just kind of like helping us to understand how Habakkuk is is mourning what is coming. But the reason that we see this is because we too are, are faced with similar situations. It's not like some evil nation is coming. That could happen. But we face situations that seem really dire and really grim, and it gets worse. But how does this apply to us? God is concerned about our heart. God will allow us to go through situations that will pressure us, squeeze us, that will heat it up, heat up our life. What comes out reveals what we are inside. When the heat gets turned up, what comes out of your heart? Anger? Fear, doubt, rebellion, bitterness, or obedience, prayer, courage, and walking by faith. You see, these fruits that come out of us, whether good or bad, point us to the condition of our hearts. They they point to what we truly believe, what our real motivation is. And bad fruits reveal that we are fighting for control and for our own self. Good fruits reveal that we believe that the Lord is in control, that we are putting off ourselves. And the fruit of our response points to the root of our belief and our motivation. But one thing is common for all of us, that none of us are immune to the heat. The heat comes. When the heat is turned up, look at how Habakkuk responds. At first, he laments to the Lord in, in 1, 2 through 4, and he And the Lord responds and says, hey, the heat's getting hotter. It's going to get worse. And so Habakkuk laments yet again, and he remembers the attributes of God. We talk about that all the time here. Remember who the Lord is and what he has done. Habakkuk does that. He remembers that the Lord, the attributes of the Lord, and he wrestles with the truth that's been revealed and with what he already knows to be true. And Habakkuk, in faith, continues to trust in what he knows about God, even amidst not understanding the situation, not understanding why things are coming. He doesn't understand all that God is doing, but he chooses to trust in what he knows about God to be true. And So we see, number three, the hopeful wait upon the Lord and walk by faith. There's a couple of uh, words that we use in our modern day language that don't mean the same thing that, that the Word of God means back then. One of them is if you use the word meditation today in a spirit, Christian spiritual sense, we're thinking of actually putting thoughts into our mind. We're actually purposely thinking about the Word of God and meditating on it all day long. But in, in our current culture, a lot of people that meditate remove all things from their thoughts. They think about nothing. Here, we also see another word, awaiting on the Lord. A lot of times in our current culture, we think waiting means like uh, waiting for my kids to finally be ready to go to church. And we're like waiting on them to be ready, waiting on them to get everything done. And I'm just standing here waiting on them to, to be finished. But that's not what he means here. Waiting is actually an active thing. And we see that Habakkuk reveals to us an act of faithful living. He has offered up his lament, and this is what he says. I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He is, he is presenting this picture of waiting upon the Lord, but he's not actually stationed in a tower, a watchtower. He's still going about his daily life. He's still involved in in the world around him. He's still uh, a prophet to the people. But he is waiting upon the Lord to bring the answer. He waits, separating himself from the counsel of the world, from the cultural views of the day, and he mentally stations himself in the watchtower. He spiritually separates himself from the world. God's speaking not to the prophet's outward ears, but inwardly. When we have prayed to God, we must observe what he answers, what answers God gives by his word, his spirit, and his providences. So let's think about this. Let's think about this waiting. Think about your attention span for a moment. Uh, that's like me telling you to think about your breath, and then later on telling you not to think about your breath, and you're like, I can't do that now, thanks. Um, I'm going to think about my breathing all day. Uh, but think about your attention span. A study done in 2018, which means it probably has changed yet even worse now, revealed that our attention span is shrinking. A goldfish's attention span is said to be nine seconds long. And this study says that collectively our attention span has dwindled to eight seconds. So we, are, we have less attention ability than a goldfish. We just bought fish in in our house and that's really sad watching those fish thinking they might be able to focus longer than I do. But that means that if I say I preach for 45 minutes, you have to redirect your attention back to me almost 340 times. That's a lot. Some of you right now are like, what did he just say? (laughs) Like, You already have to do it. And yes, I counted that up before now. I'm not that good. Um, as believers, we should have a better attention span. For God calls us and commands us to wait upon Him. To think about the things that He has said. To meditate upon His Word. Psalm uh, or 2714 says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 130, five and 6 says, Wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Waiting actually involves obedience as we bind our will to God's will, as we choose to trust what He has said in His word, no matter what the situation feels like. Oftentimes we do get stuck. We, we wait and we, we're, we're not moving because we're afraid to move. But the Lord says, "You get busy doing what i 'm what I say, and you keep pay- waiting for me to answer don't Don't hold yourself off from the world, but continue to live your life and be in obedience to me. Waiting involves humility as you acknowledge that God has authority and control over your life. living on a ranch for eight and a half years now has revealed some things to me about some of the passages that Christ spoke of in the New Testament when he used illustrations of farming. And just as the farmer tills the ground and breaks up the hard ground and removes the stones and plants the seed, then he waits for the rain to fall and the seed to sprout. The farmer cannot make the seed sprout. No matter what he does, he can do everything right. But that seed can only be sprouted when God allows it to sprout. The farmer cannot make it do it. He cannot make life germinate. But he's obedient to prepare for the harvest that will one day come as the Lord provides the needed nourishment and life. The farmer can't just sit back on the back porch, look at the field, and just hope that it comes up. He has to do something. He has to be faithful to do what is required of him in the field. Waiting involves meditating upon the word. Waiting involves study. Waiting involves getting busy doing what God has already made clear, but with an eye on the horizon watching for an answer. The Christian parent who waits upon the Lord to save their child does not wait stationary or stagnant, but they faithfully teach their child the word. They have family devotions. They live out the faith before them and call them to faithful obedience while they wait for the Lord to regenerate their child's stony heart and to give them a heart of flesh. But no matter how hard the parent wants it, the parent can't make their child be a believer. The parent cannot save their child. Pastor Stu constantly puts in the the church app us praying and and asking us to pray for uh, fellow co-workers that he has. And he he reveals to us a picture of this as well. That as as we wait upon the Lord to quicken uh, the heart of somebody... We have to be faithful to have those spiritual conversations, to teach the Word of God and call to repentance and faith as we look for the day of salvation that only God can bring. Waiting on the Lord in the Bible is never an excuse for a lack of obedience to what God has already made clear. Waiting is, not, is active, it's not passive. We'll see that more in, in verse 4, but it can, he continues on. The hopeful not only wait upon the Lord, but they walk by faith, by obeying the answer of the Lord. Look at verses uh, 2 and 3. The Lord answers Habakkuk and says, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay." He tells him to write the vision. And then he uses a phrase that everybody in the Old Testament who was a Jew would would jump back to this thought. He would say, make it plain on tablets. And the tablet statement made the Jews remember the law and the Ten Commandments written on two tablets of stone. And for this reason, it was believed that what Habakkuk received was a summation of the whole law in one phrase. That the most condensed version of all that God had said to them up to this point about how a chosen person of God would live would be the righteous shall live by his faith. And so he, he tells him to, to write it so precisely that he who runs may read, may read it. And there, there's a few different views on this. That one, it would be so intelligible as to be read easily by anyone running past, literally running they could, they could see it like a billboard and know what it said. But number two, it was so legible that whoever reads it may run and tell all that they see what they have heard. And number three, that he who, runs, uh, or he who reads it may run through it. That is, read it at once without difficulty. And I think it's a little bit of all three of these things. It needs to be short and clear so it is received quickly and legibly. So then we are able to quickly dispense it and pass it on to others. And as a, as a pastor, as a, a teacher of the Word, I hear this and I think that that is a challenge for, for pastors. To make sure that we are striving to bring a, a simple message that the Lord has given. Not to dumb down the Word of God, but to make it easily passed on. And God tells him to make it where he who runs may read, or so he may run who reads it. And then he tells him, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. God has established in the fullness of time for this to come to pass. And for us, as we wait, as we hear that there's a a, a greater darkness coming, we have to remember that God has promised that one day there will be a light shining in that darkness that is even greater. And we know it as, as Christ, when he came, he was the light that came in human flesh. But one day, even... Christ will come back and make all things new. All of our suffering, all of our sin will be done away with in the full, fullness of time. But he tells him it will not lie. How many times have you sat and you thought, you know, I hear what God is saying, but I have this unbelief. I have this, this aching darkness inside me that says that this isn't true and maybe it's not really going to happen. And he promises us it will not lie. What he has said is truth. If it hasn't happened, then it's not because it's a lie. It's because it hasn't come to the appointed time yet. God does not work on our time schedule. And he knows our impatience. He knows our, as we suffer, we struggle with with the time that that is coming through, the, the yearning for relief, for recompense, for redemption. And he says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come; it will not delay. And as we come to the kind of the meat and the, the the whole focus of this whole book, we come to the last two verses. And there's been views on this one that it means it's a contrast between the Jewish nation that that um, Habakkuk was preaching to the Jewish nation versus the Chaldeans. There's also a view that, well, he complained about how wicked that Jewish nation was. So maybe it's a a, a contrast between the believing Jew and just the unbelieving Jew. Maybe it's a little bit of both. And I would say it's a fourth option because this verse, mainly the second half of verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith, is quoted three times in the New Testament, which tells us that this is a fourth option, I believe, That it's the unrighteous versus the righteous. And for the the continuity of our message, it is the action or it is the hopeless versus the hopeful. Look at verse uh, chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And then skip to verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. His de- or death, like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And we see here the action of the hopeless, of the unrighteous. The soul that is puffed up is not upright. And when it says puffed up, it's like filled up like a balloon. It looks, it looks big, it looks full, but it's just filled with air. There's nothing inside. It is like the New Testament passage that there are whitewashed tombs. They look like something beautiful on the outside, but in the inside, they're dead men's bones. They have a resemblance of greatness, but in reality, they're just a void filled with air. And the Lord uses these metaphors of wine and greed and sheol. That wine gives an appearance of courage or boldness. But it is not true once the the liquid courage wears off. Greed is insatiable. And the more you have it, the more you want. Sheol is never satisfied. It consumes the dead and always wants more. And the Chaldean is like these these three. He gathers for himself all nations and continually wants more and is not satisfied. And for us today... That would be the, the likeness of pride. Pride is a black hole that cannot be filled. No matter how much you do for yourself, it is never enough. You need more. You have to perform better. You have to be better. You have to conquer more. You have to earn more. You have to get the, the pay raise. You have to get the better job. You have to get the better uh, spouse. Like you're, you're never fulfilled and we were created with a need that only God can fill. And when we attempt to fill it with ourselves or with created things, we find that we cannot be filled or satisfied. And So there's a specific reason, I believe, that Habakkuk receives this message from the Lord when, in verse 5, he, he jumps to wine. And we're going we're gonna to try to understand this. If you will, turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel actually happens after Habakkuk. Daniel is in the midst of the Babylonian Empire. He's already, they've already been conquered and Daniel was taken off as a captive. And now we see him, we've already passed the time of King Nebuchadnezzar who conquered the land and took them into captivity. And now his son Belshazzar is ruling And the Lord traces the arrogance of the Chaldeans to their addiction to wine. And as he says that it was a treacherous thing in the way that it deceives those who drink it. They think of themselves more highly uh, than sober assessment would permit. The announcement of the end of the Chaldean kingdom occurred while Belshazzar Belshazzar was drinking himself drunk at a banquet. Let us look at at Daniel chapter 5. Hopefully you've been able to find it. Look at verse 1, and we'll read half of this chapter. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them, Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, and wood and stone. So they took that which was set apart as holy to the Lord. They drank out of it in their pagan feast and then praised the idol's of the things that were gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. In verse 5, it says, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, the opposite opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, and the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, and the king declared... Uh, to the, wi- or the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. You see this prideful king, drinking from these holy vessels, profaning the name of God, profaning the holy things that were set apart to be used for God. And in his arrogance, the Chaldean king drinks, drinks out of these things and worships idols while drinking from them. And you see this pagan man versus this description of Daniel who seems to be complete contrast to the king. And it leads us to the last point, the action of the hopeful and the righteous. Righteous. And we see this contrast between um, King Belshazzar and Daniel. Let's look at verse 13 of Daniel 5. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods in you, or that it is in you, and that the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Righteousness in, in a, um, a holy way, Daniel responds to this pagan king. And he responds boldly. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, and pay attention. He points back to God. And his glory was taken from him. He was driven among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all this, But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of this house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. So Daniel responds to the king. Not suppressing truth, but revealing truth. It was God who has set up your kingdom. It is God who has given you all this wealth and all this power. And you chose to exalt yourself over him. And then he begins to respond about the, uh, the message on the wall. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed, meaning this message is from God. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Stop there before we read the last two verses. He doesn't seem to be phased by the message that he just heard that his kingdom has come to an end. He's like, oh, we're going to clothe him with purple. We're going to make him the third ruler. And he doesn't realize that he was just, his kingdom was just proclaimed over. God has brought it to an end. Look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Daniel reveals the truth of the matter. He does not suppress the truth. He stands for truth. He knows what God has proclaimed. God has given him the message. He knows God is the determiner of life. And only God is to be worshipped. In the face of the Chaldean king, this powerful, evil man, Daniel stands bold upon the Word of God. Amidst the the darkness that he is is living in, he proclaims the light. God is to be placed over ourself, faith over pride. And as we think about this, this life, as we think about the uh, messages that we hear on the news, the messages that we hear in schools, the message we hear out in the public, everything is darkness and no matter how hard we pray for it, I believe the word is true that it 's going to get worse before it gets better. But God calls us to stand upon the truth like He calls Daniel to, and he tells him to to uh, interpret this message, and it 's not like we 're going to be interpreting messages but we 're We are to proclaim this message. We are to give this message that, hey, God has given a a good and right way to live. And we are to live this way. God has called us to be holy. God has called us this to be our theme. As we were singing a few minutes ago, I was thinking about there is a fountain filled with blood. And it was talking about as this life is is drawing to an end. May it be said that, that my theme was the blood of Christ. That the theme of my life, when somebody reveals or, or looks back, eulogizes me, that they say the theme of his life was Christ. That is what it looks like to have somebody who lives by faith. Not living for yourself, not living for your own way, not, not waiting on God and then He doesn't answer in your time so you take it into your own hands. He says to live by by faith means to, to wait upon Him. To live according to what the Word of God says. We see both in Daniel and in Habakkuk, men who lived by faith. But this verse is also quoted by Paul in Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And he also quotes it in Galatians 3. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And these two verses point to a, a justification, like a, a making, uh, making right, a de- declaration that we are made right because of what Christ had done. Faith in Christ brings a justification for us, a legal decora- declaration. But the author of Hebrews mentions it too. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And this author presents this phrase, the just shall live by faith, in a way that is a a, a sanctified life. A life that is always putting off the old man and living by faith in Christ here and now. And so, we said a, a few minutes ago that God is concerned about our heart. And the book of Habakkuk reveals that God is dealing with heart issues. He's dealing with pride and self. The Jews at the beginning of the book are living pridefully, thinking they can choose who they worship. They're thinking they can make their own laws and not live according to God's laws. And God brings condemnation upon them for them thinking that they can rule their own life. But then he brings this Chaldean nation who thinks all of their wealth and all of their power has been brought at their own hand. Their might is their God. And God brings them down as well, revealing that pride and self are to be put off. And faith in the one true God is also a heart issue. The same battle rages today that Satan has not changed his tactics. Those who reject God suppress the truth about God and are prideful and worship self. The hope of Habakkuk, the hope of Daniel, and the hope that any of us have is is faith in the one true God. Listen to what Jeremy Pierre, a biblical counselor, wrote in The Dynamic Heart in Daily Life. He said, Faith is the means by which the gospel is received. Thus, Faith is at the center of heart transformation. Faith is how God restores His design for the human heart so that people can commune with Him and reflect His character. By faith, people receive Christ's righteousness and progressively manifest it in the dynamic functions of their hearts. Faith allows people to think differently as they receive the knowledge of God from His Word. They want differently As they begin to value what God loves, and they choose differently, as they commit to themselves or commit themselves to what He says is worthy. And so, as we examine our hearts today, as we think about these passages, trying to make application to ourselves, are there are there roots of pride and self that need to be uprooted? Self is a a disease that we all face. It is a it is a sinful deception of the heart. That we think we need to be number one. That we think we rule our hearts. And we all face it. And that can only be undone by putting your trust in someone outside of yourself. By trusting in Christ alone. In Christ alone, that is where the power to uproot pride and plant humility. In Christ alone is where the power is to die to self and live to God. In self, you have the wrath of God revealed revealed from heaven against you. And so today, whether you are a believer, you are challenged to continue to take every step and every choice that you make, every decision, every conversation. May it be for Christ's glory. And if you're not a believer, today is the day that you are called to put off self and to trust in someone outside of yourself. To trust in Christ alone. Hope is available by faith in Christ. In Christ through faith, remember that God is in control. He is the sovereign, everlasting, holy, righteous, and wise God. Remember that God has not laid you aside or forgotten his covenant with his people. It may be dark and it may seem like it's getting darker. But remember that he's not laid you aside. He's doing something in you. Also, consider the days of old. Make a diligent search through the Scripture and remember how God has worked. Remember what He did through Habakkuk and through men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who stood for truth in the midst of a pagan nation. Remember to lament, not complain. Complaining puts trust in you. Lamenting puts trust in Christ. And remember to read the Word of God and listen to what word of conviction or caution or counsel or comfort that he brings. As we close, I'm going to ask Elijah to to come back up. And I want us to listen to the words of this hymn. We've not sang this hymn at church. I hope to do it soon. But it's written by John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace and let us love and sing and wonder songs that we do here. And the modern uh, title of this hymn is, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. But the original published title was Prayer Answered by Crosses. And you're thinking, yeah, I don't really know that I want to sing that song. But let us listen to the words of this hymn. I ask the Lord that I might grow. And the words are hopefully up here. There we go. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer. But it was almost, or but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yet more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. Let's pray. Lord, we ask today that these trials that you employ in our lives, that they would set us free from self and pride that we would worship you alone, that we would not suppress the truth in sin, but we would